the Red for Ed movement has become an international phenomenon, empowering teachers and educators from around the world to demand changes in the education system that benefit students, schools, and communities. What began with a few teachers wearing red shirts has developed into a grassroots force for change. Today, we're going to talk with the Arizona teacher who started Red for Ed. Hello and welcome to episode 37 of the Education for a Better World podcast. I'm Mike Soskel. And I'm Diane Smokorowski. Each week we will bring you conversations with some of the most dynamic thought leaders in education. This week's episode is sponsored by GoToScience, a tool that allows our youngest learners the opportunity to learn by going on adventures without leaving their classroom. We know that education will be the driving force for a bright, optimistic future. On each show, we'll introduce you to innovative ideas, we'll stretch your thinking, and help you see ways to empower students to affect positive change in the world. We are thrilled that you are coming along with us on this journey. Let's dream big. So before we get into the show today, Diane, it's been a while since we've talked to each other. How's your summer been? Oh, it's been great and happy back to school. Yeah, this is your first day, right? It is. Today's the day the kids come. And I have to tell you, no matter how many years one teaches, it's still the restless night of sleep before the first day of school. It's that internal message of the children are coming. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so exciting. So yes, happy first day from Kansas. And, and so how did you sleep last night? Very little. <laughs> Good stuff, yeah. Today's guest is Noah Carvelis. Noah is a PhD student in curriculum and instruction at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Previously, he was a music teacher in Phoenix, Arizona, where he also served as a National Education Association local president and co-founded the group Arizona Educators United, which helped organize and lead the Red for Ed movement in Arizona. Noah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So Noah, why don't you start by telling us about uh, the Red for Ed movement and how that became a thing? Sure, yeah. So um, Red for Ed movement, I think, really um, really starts in probably West Virginia are the most recent groups that we can point to. But I think really they, they were drawing even inspiration from the Chicago Teachers Union in 2012. So um, that happened. West Virginia teachers go out. And then um, we went out in, in Arizona where I was actually teaching. So this all, this all started really on social media. Um, I got into a Twitter exchange with our union president, Joe Thomas, basically talking about West Virginia and what we could do next um, in Arizona, because as people, people I'm sure now, most of the listeners understand, we, we have really, really severe issues in, in Arizona that we were facing at the time and still, still continue to face. Um, so we got active. It started through Twitter. We started getting the hashtag out. We started running stuff on um, Facebook, like uh, Red for Ed events. We did our first um, Red for Ed day on a Wednesday where we all wore red shirts, which, of course, has blown up. And I, I see people now uh, this last week from all over the nation doing that and talking about Wednesday is Red for Ed day. And it, it's just kind of wild. It's really crazy. Um, but that all, that all started kind of moving at least my involvement in it in, in Arizona. And I think kind of really the branding of Red for Ed and, and Red for Ed Wednesdays was really like around February of, of 2018. With the Red for Ed movement, it definitely has spread heavily through social media. 
And through some of this, what are some of the surprises that have come to you? You know, um, I, I would say it's hard for me to even point to one or two because every single day, especially when we were really organizing this and getting it going, um, every day I would wake up and there would be a new, a new surprising thing. And every day before I would go to bed, there'd be a new surprising thing. It just kept growing and growing at this incredible rate. Um, but if I had to point to a couple things, for sure, just the amount of enthusiasm. When, when we first organized the very first Red for Ed Day, I was talking with the math teacher down the hall, and I was hoping, you know, if we can just get like five or six people to wear red, like that would be a good start. But that first day it spread. It went through uh, social media, and it just caught on like crazy. And there were thousands of people all around the state. So that first day, it's really hard to top for me. Um, where you expect maybe four or five people, and then that day comes, and five or six days ago, you thought you might be sitting alone in a red shirt, and the whole state's covered in red. That, that was pretty incredible. Um, of course, when we had our, our huge march on the Capitol, when I see other people who are um, kind of following the, the, the sorts of things that we've set up, and they're using some of the same tactics, and the branding, and they're using red red, and they're using the same fonts, and and we did we did that originally too on um, borrowing from West Virginia. It's, it's really exciting to see kind of that chain, and that's always been surprising. And um, I see even teachers in other countries now, especially in Canada, who are starting to use the hashtag and I'm wearing red, and it's it's incredible to think something that I thought might just be confined to uh, my hallway in my small elementary school that I was teaching in last year has, has grown and is in Toronto and it's in Detroit and it's in California. And it's happening in Indiana. It's, it's everywhere right now. And that's, that's the most surprising thing out of all of this, for sure. It, it really says a lot about just how ready teachers and communities are for change in our schools. So there's no doubt that this Red for Red movement has, um, has brought teachers together and has really been the driving force behind positive change for children and teachers and, and public education uh, across the nation and, and now spreading around the world. Um, I think it's important for us to probably discuss some of the precipitating factors that made this necessary, though. Um, we see some uh, systemic problems in public education in the way that it's funding, in the way that uh, there are equitable outcomes for kids, you know, all over, all over the United States. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of those factors in Arizona that made this necessary and possibly some of the other locations where this is spread? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, Across the board, a lot of these things are, are very similar in other states. When I go around and talk to other people, I'm connected with them on Zoom meetings or something and talking. Um, it, it sounds a lot like what we were facing in Arizona. So kind of broadly, one of the biggest things is that the, the per-people funding is just abysmal. It was, I don't know what the ranking is right now in Arizona, but when we started, it was kind of between 48th and 49th in the nation. So that, that looks like students not having textbooks or enough chairs. That looks like us not being able to just provide the very essential basics of teaching, right? So that, that's one of the biggest issues. And then folded over on top of that is the issue of pay for teachers. And we were, again, around 49. Maybe if we had some nice demographics and they cut the numbers in a good way, we might get up to 47th in the nation in terms of teacher pay. Um, and so what that looks like is we can't keep enough teachers in the building. So now you have classes of 30, 35, even for as young as kindergartners. So you have 30 uh, kindergartners, five-year-olds, on the first day of school. I mean, that's, 
that's insane. <laughs> There's almost no amount of money that, that you can pay somebody that would match, match the amount of work that goes into that. That's, that's crazy. And not to mention that's the kid's learning environment. So we struggle a lot with keeping teachers. We struggle a lot with being able to put books in kids' hands and make sure they have a seat in the classroom um, to say nothing of the, the amount of one-on-one -on -one time they're getting. Are they getting personalized instruction? I mean, that, that unfortunately, in most states has to be an afterthought when you have 35 kids in there and you don't have enough books. I mean, it, it really gets down to, in some classes, just a matter of surviving and trying to make sure every single kid at least gets to the bare minimum because it's so, so difficult to go beyond that. So those are some of the, the, the kind of broad issues we face. And day-to-day -day teachers are living with that and they're living with um, buildings, working in buildings that just really don't function. There were a, a couple of threads that went around when, when the movement was really starting of the building conditions. I know Oklahoma did one and it was just ridiculous. I mean, places, schools don't have paper towels. They don't have books. The chairs are falling apart. The ceiling's falling apart. In Arizona, we have the same stuff. I mean, we have these just disgusting pictures of staff bathrooms that didn't have soap in them. I mean, it, it was crazy. It, some of the stuff um, even working in the schools and talking with teachers at that at that point every single day around the clock about these things, that was still shocking to me. So it's kind of this, this whole picture of just a really bad situation of what it looks like when we disinvest from education on massive levels. In Arizona, they cut $1.1 billion. I mean, that touches every single aspect of someone's life, whether it's the student having a book or the teacher being able to have health insurance that covers their family. I mean, those, those things become impossible when you slash the budget like that. One of the things that I find quite interesting about the Red for Ed movement is it's empowering teachers to have voice, where many of us may have felt that there wasn't a space for that. What have you noticed in teacher voice being broadened through this movement? Yeah, that's, that's one of the things that I'm the most proud of right now is you can see the teachers have, have not just bought in, but they have authentic, real power. And they, they not only feel it, but they're acting upon it. So in Arizona, for example, we, we created this system called Site Liaison. So basically, you're the, you're the site leader, you're the organizer at your building. And we gave them an organizing toolkit and basically just said, go out and, and help us build a movement. You can do whatever you want. We're going to link you into our statewide communications, but we want you to drive this at a local level. And so we saw people start doing huge things. There was a, I think they had like 2,000 people on a march in Tucson, um, statewide people who were acting as, as sort of the leaders of this thing, like myself, we, we had no idea it was even going to happen. So it was this really authentic, realized, tangible power where you're seeing thousands, two thousands of people mobilizing on the streets and, and it's not coming from any sort of official place or a press release. It's just happening organically in the moment. So that's really exciting. And then what that, that looks like on a longer term now and a, a larger scale is we're seeing people stepping up and running for office. We're seeing them getting involved in our union. We're seeing them really kind of shape the direction of not just education, but politics in general. And that, that's really interesting to see teachers engage in that level. And that's something that I'm really excited we were able to, uh, to help develop here with Red Fred. And there's, there's no, um, you know, waiting your turn to become the treasurer and then become the vice president and the president. And now you can maybe have some more power. It's nothing like that, which is really refreshing, too. 
and you don't have to um, know somebody to get power, anything like that, at least in most settings. In Arizona, I think this is definitely true. It's this sort of authentic, realized power because we need people to come in and help. And we've been pretty successful in opening up those spaces, and teachers have been incredibly successful and brave and stepping up and, and just running with it. So that's one of the things that I'm most proud of, and I, I think it really sets an example of what an education social movement could look like in just the social movement in general. When we get away from kind of top-down decision-making, something really powerful can happen and, and has happened now in, in several states. So, Noah, I, some of the pushback from uh, those outside teachers, or maybe even some teachers themselves, might be that um, the role of a teacher should be to teach kids in the classroom and uh, politics shouldn't be a part of that. How would you respond to, um, to people, and, and even legislatures have started to pass laws saying that uh, the teachers can't have a political voice in some different ways. How would you respond to people that say that teachers should not be involved in politics? It's ridiculous. That, that would be my first thing that I would want to say. But, but when we look at it, it doesn't even, to me, it doesn't make sense. The argument that teachers shouldn't be political doesn't make any sense. When you're a boss, essentially, your boss, your school board, the legislators who essentially run the schools with a lot of their decision making, when your boss is elected by popular vote, you should be political. And when the budget of the institution that you're working for is set by the legislature, you have to be political. So if your boss and the money that runs your workplace are set by popular vote and the people who are elected, you have to be engaged in that process. If teachers aren't engaged in that process, what, what's going to happen? We're going to see exactly what, what has happened over the last couple of years. The same thing will keep happening. They will disinvest. They will privatize the school. Teachers will leave in huge numbers. Education, the quality of education for each and every student will drop. It's, uh, it's just going to keep repeating that process. What we've learned is nobody's coming to save teachers. There's nobody waiting in the hallways or waiting in the wings of City Hall all across the United States to run in and say, you need to invest in these institutions, you need to invest in these kids, you need to invest in these teachers. They will continue to disinvest, they will continue to privatize, and my fear is there will come a day when we don't even have public education. And nobody was really, there were some people who were there and who were fighting it and doing an incredible job. But what I think we really needed was we needed a movement of teachers, and we still need a movement of teachers to stand up and fight back. So even getting beyond the idea of elected leadership for schools or elected um, legislators who are setting the budgets, just the very notion of public education, to me, it's, it's incredibly apparent that nobody else was really stepping up in huge numbers to fight this. We need teachers to fight this. Otherwise, the very idea of public education in the United States, I think, will vanish. And speaking to those teachers who might just be saying, I've heard about Red Thread, I've just seen the t-shirts, what is the message that you would like every teacher to hear? Just step up and start doing it. Um, nobody who started one of these movements knew what they were doing. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's, uh, I think I actually mean that in a very positive way because I think it's led to a lot of our success. So we didn't, we didn't know what we were doing, so we, we, we just went with our gut. We went with what our colleagues wanted. We went with what we felt in our hearts was right. And that's what teachers all around the world need to start doing right now. Just trust yourself. You have power. You can act on it. You have to just get involved and take that first step. And one of that first step is a tweet or a red for ad day or a meeting at your building or whatever it looks like. 
just have to take that first step. And for us, it was a tweet. And then we put on red. And then we did walk-ins. And then we did walk-outs. And we, we took all these little steps in between. And we just kept taking it day by day. And that's what it is. We didn't show up and meet with each other in February and get all the teachers from around the state and say, here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. Here's our three-year plan. It doesn't look like that. It's just day-to-day trying to figure out what's best for schools. And the first thing you have to do is just figure out what that first step is and then just trust yourself. And that, that, that's my message that I would say. It's just step up, get ready to do it, and, and trust yourself and take that first step and just kind of a leap of faith and, and your colleagues will follow, I think. In addition to empowering teachers and helping them find their voice, uh, I know that uh, helping students find their own voice is something that you're passionate about. Talk a little bit about what that looks like in the classroom. Yeah, so um, so I'm really interested in especially critical pedagogy. And for me as a music teacher, I, w- I was teaching music for the last three years in Phoenix, and now I'm in, I'm in grad school in Wisconsin. Um, but as a music teacher, I use hip-hop a lot. So we'll use hip-hop to kind of analyze different things, different uh, kind of societal structures and themes that we see playing out in lyrics or playing out in music videos. And um, we'll, we'll kind of break down these different issues. So they could be issues of race, they could be issues of gender, they could be issues of class, or, or um, being like a, a lot of the students that I saw were Latino, and so we'll talk about those sorts of issues too in the Latino community, especially for um, young Latinos and Latinas, and uh, really break it down through music. And then we turn to making our own music, then it's kind of a response, it's kind of our own art that shows the understandings we've developed through listening and growing and discussing other people's art. So it's really an art-based way of just, just trying to, um, to understand the world in a deeper way. And it's not so much leading students, or it's not at all leading students to one understanding or another. It's a lot of kind of problem posing, question posing. Here's this lyric, what does that mean to you? Write for a minute on what you think about it, and that sort of thing. And so students really come to their, um, their own organic understandings of the world around them and then we kind of try to, to to make those more tangible and to get them out through music which is a really uh i think rewarding process and really really something amazing as a teacher to, to have the honor to be a part of and, and watch young people kind of um to grow in that way in a really artistic kind of critical way it's, it's really a pretty powerful tool i think and with that comes a little bit of magic right that students discover their own voices make a big impact. Have many of your students talked about possibly wanting to join efforts with the teachers in the movement? You know, my students never really brought that sort of thing up. When I, I would get other, other students who would contact me, especially high schoolers, um, for, for a lot of my middle schoolers and elementary students, I don't think they really saw it even as an option, which I think says a lot too about how we um, how we treat youth and how we how we view youth is kind of like not really full citizens yet. And I think they, they absorb that idea and are like, oh, I just got to let the adults do this. But um, for the older kids, for some of the high schoolers, I think they've started to see, especially in this generation, um, with all the incredible activists that are, that are out there, um, that they are in a position to act as a citizen and to get engaged in, in protests and and almost viewed as a civic duty for some of them. So I would get messages from some students to get involved, and that can be really powerful. Um, I know other states really organized students more and got them more involved 
we didn't do very much of that at all, but the students themselves would get themselves organized and show up. Again, maybe high, um, normally high schoolers would come out and show up and, and support at rallies and marches and things like that. And that's a really powerful moment um, when you're a teacher to see your student believes in you and trusts and knows that um, something isn't right in the school and, and supports you and standing up and wants to stand next to you in that fight. And that, that's a really powerful thing to experience. Yeah, and in addition to, to some students jumping in, uh, high school students and, uh, and pre-service teachers in, in different universities, I know uh, certainly participated in that Red for Ed movement uh, and, and still are. Um, I know that there was some support from people in higher positions also, politicians, union leaders. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how that helped move the Red for Ed movement forward? Definitely, yeah. Um, we had a lot of support from politicians, for sure, um, on a national level and on a on a local level or state level, and um, we had uh, had union leaders for sure again on a on a state and national level. And for Arizona, the union piece was really key. We were able to work with Arizona Education Association, our, our NEA affiliate, in really powerful ways that I think we we matched each other well. Where we had kind of a grassroots raw energy and structure that we were just running with. And AEA, the union had years of experience and research and organizers on staff and presidents and a democratic body to make decisions and, and all of that. And so we matched each other in really powerful ways that I think let us um, have a lot of the success that we were able to have where it wasn't strictly union, but it wasn't strictly grassroots. It was this interesting kind of connection where they really let us lead, but they were helping us to, to make smart decisions because we don't know the layout of Arizona politics as well as they do. We're teachers, right? We're not we're not down at the Capitol for the last thirty years talking every single day to people and writing bills and, and doing research on all these sorts of different policy items. Um, so that was really, really powerful for us and I think it sets a good um a good example that can be duplicated really anywhere. And um I think when you look at the places that have been really successful so far who have done these things, they they've had that relationship. And places that haven't been as successful that relationship, I think, either was was stunted very early on, or just it just soured, and you can see the whole movement kind of sour along with that. But um, places like LA really inspire me, where that that looks like a union movement, and it's led from to me looking from the outside, it's really led from the bottom up at the same time, where you have the union involved, but you also have this kind of grassroots, authentic movement of teachers and that that's a very powerful thing and in arizona we really benefited from that relationship at the same time though i think um the the independence is really important too especially in red states um people want to throw any sort of kind of smear they can to to kill this thing and things like associating with unions or democrat uh the democratic party anything like that um, can really kind of deflate the energy because people, honestly, a, a good chunk of people don't support those sorts of things in a place like Arizona. And you can lose a considerable amount of your membership if people start to think, well, there's no space for Republicans here, conservatives here. So that's a, that's a delicate thing that we have to walk at the same time that we struggle with. So um, in some of the early moments of the movement when we were really, really independent, I think that's when we had some of our, our most our most powerful moments at the same time because we were able to bring everybody in under a banner of Fred Fred that um, didn't really have any 
sort of negative affiliations, didn't have any sort of path that you could point to, and it didn't have any really sort of predecessor in Arizona that could bring good or bad associations. So it's this difficult thing of figuring out how do we move the needle and do we do it from a, a simply independent space or a cooperative space? Who are we going to talk with? Who are we going to work with? And that, that can be difficult. And there's a, there's a lot that goes into that. So that is, if you're listening and interested in starting one of these movements, I'd say be very thoughtful about who you're associating with and how. And for us, associating with the union was really powerful. But um, you have to be thoughtful about how you do that in your settings. And uh, other places, too, again, like L.A., Oakland, uh, Chicago, for sure, really set some powerful examples of what, what this what this work can look like. I think they took it to a level beyond us, especially with um, the common good demands and things like that. They really set an example of a social justice-oriented teachers movement that uh, to me is really impressive and really inspiring. It really, it just, it sounds like democracy in action, right? You know, you have this, this uprising, this grassroots uprising of, of civic activists who are demanding positive change in their community. Uh, they're going to higher spaces like, uh, like the state capitol and, and even the national level uh, to demand these changes in their local community and working with politicians to make it come to fruition. Uh, it's exactly what democracy should look like. I, I think it's just so impressive how you've been able to, uh, to grow this organically. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 I don't want to take too much credit for even growing it because it's teachers who have kind of seen, um, you know, this is my place. This is, this is my opportunity. Um, there's no way to grow it or to develop it more if teachers aren't willing to step up and fight. And that, that to me is the thing that's so rewarding is just as you put it, that democracy in action. So many teachers, I think, have, have taught these sorts of things and these social movements, but we could never imagine ourselves being involved in them. And you always kind of wonder, well, what would I do if I was in that time? And now we can say definitively, we know what teachers would do because they're standing up and they're fighting back against this, uh, these austerity measures and these devastating cuts that our kids in, in schools are suffering from. And it's really amazing just how willing teachers all around the nation and, and even now starting uh, in other places too outside of the United States have been willing to just step up and say enough is enough. Uh, we got to fight back. And that's, to me, it's so incredible. And that, that idea that you mentioned of democracy in action is it's beautiful. It's beautiful to just imagine see teachers engaged in that way. So before I ask you our last questions that we, that we ask of, uh, of all guests, um, where, can, where can teachers and other educators and even just uh, outside parties who are interested, where can they go to get more information? You know, it's, it's, um, it's difficult because it's so state by state. So what I would do is I would go right to your Facebook, pull up whatever state you're in, and see if there's a Red for Ed page out there. Type in Indiana Red for Ed, things like that. And I bet in most most cases you'll find something. So you can jump in, get involved, figure out who's running that page, and and see if you can start uh start moving things forward with them. If there isn't one, it might it might be up to you to start that. So I I'd start checking around, asking around colleagues, have you heard anything? And if you can't find it, it's it's probably on you then to start it. So um, I would check in and start doing that sort of stuff and see what's out there on social media already. And then if you're looking for just information on um, kind of how we've done things in the Red for Red movement, how we've been successful, where we've had failures, and, and trying to learn from that, um, there's a great book called Red State Revolt by Eric Blanc that's out there. Um, 
talks about Arizona, Oklahoma, West Virginia, and, and kind of what happened, what could have happened, and really gets in detail. Um, there are a couple other things out there. I wrote a thing for Rethinking Schools that's out on just kind of how Arizona did our stuff. I got another piece on social media that should be out. Maybe by the time this airs, that'll be out on, on how we navigated social media in Arizona. And again, what are, what are some of the pitfalls in that work and what are some of the really the hopeful moments that we had? So there's some things out there, too, if you just want to start getting some information on, on what what has been done so you can kind of inform your own stuff. But I would say just jump on social media, especially Facebook seems to be the hub for a lot of this stuff and type in your state and red for editing. I think you'll probably find a page and you can get involved and, and start shaking things up because I more and more I'm convinced there's not a single state out there that's really exempt from these issues that we're facing. So it's uh it's the right time. So just get out there and, and start putting in that work and, and find the space or create the space because it's it's needed. Great. So our last question, and this is something that we ask of all of our guests, and we're going to ask you to do it in only one or two sentences. That's the tough part. If you could change education in some way to make the world a better place, what would you do? Oh, that's a big question. Um, the first thing I would do, I think I would, um, I would give teachers and students the, the funding they need to be successful. I think that's the the most simple fundamental thing. And I know people say, they point to charts and say, uh, funding doesn't deliver results and those, those charts have been debunked time and time again. We have to invest in our schools. That's the very first thing. If we don't have the investments, we can't do the things that teachers really know that they can and should be doing. So I would say fund our schools and let teachers teach. Cause that's the other thing we're really struggling with is teachers are just, obliterated by all the hoops we have to jump through, all the different little boxes we have to check that really are just tedious, slow us down, and get away from really student-centered teaching. So let teachers teach and give them the money they need. Thank you for joining us today. Please visit our website at edforbetterworld.com. That's ed, E-D, the number four, betterworld.com for show notes, and to learn more about inviting Mike and I to lead a workshop for your teachers. And don't forget to check the other podcast-related goodies. We'd like to thank Noah Carvelis for being a guest on today's show. Credit for music on the show goes to Midair Machine. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and that it gave you some new ideas and perspectives. Through education and action, we can create a better world. Until we're together again, continue to dream big. And affect positive change.